The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 58, this is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. When was the last time, do you remember me releasing three podcast episodes within a week's time? Really, within about five days' time. We had Episode 56 this past uh, Sunday, March 15th. Uh, followed the next day on March 16th with episode 57, and here we are with episode 58, three episodes in the same week talking about the same issue. Uh, that, in a nutshell, just shows how impactful and how significant this whole corona- coronavirus situation is. Uh, and when you say that things are changing, if not daily, but also hourly, uh, we really mean it. Uh, because and the reason that I keep coming on and doing these podcast episodes, and I really appreciate you listening and appreciate the feedback I've been getting even just this week. Uh, the reason for it is because so much has been happening, particularly on the federal government side. Um, the uh, President Trump just signed into law last night, Wednesday, March 18th, uh, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. We've been talking about it for uh, several days as the House of Representatives passed a bill uh, over the weekend. Uh, the Senate then took it up, uh, made some relatively minor tweaks to it before passing it yesterday, and then last night President Trump uh, enacts it. It now goes into law, becomes effective 15 days from uh, yesterday, which is April 2nd, 2020. And I wanted to come back on and give you all um, a very quick uh, executive high-level summary of what the law is and what employers need to know with regard to this law. Before I do that, I did want to bring back uh, one of my special guests uh, who is really dialed in to government, what's going on in Washington, D.C., what's going on with the state uh, levels. Uh, Howard Schweitzer, who is the CEO of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, uh, was uh, very gracious uh, in offering to jump in for about 15 minutes uh, and give us a summary of what's been going on, what just happened, what the impact may be of all of this on the November elections and what will happen in the coming days in Washington and around the country, just to put some of this into some quick context. Howard, thanks for coming back on again. Mike, thanks for having me. Crazy it is, times. It's not an anniversary special, but uh, this is important and significant enough to have you talking to our listeners. Uh, I, I don't usually give dates when I'm recording podcasts, but I think it's kind of important uh, to give context uh, of uh, what we're when we're talking about these issues because so much is changing, not only on a daily basis, but in many cases on an hourly basis. So we are recording this on uh, on Thursday, March 19th, 2020, and it's 
fair to say I think that this has been a crazy last six days uh, from the federal government standpoint, also from the states. We'll get into that in a moment. But if you can take us back and uh, let us know what the process has been, what's been going on in Washington, D.C. over the past six days, particularly as it pertains to the coronavirus legislation. Sure, Mike. So the House passed a bill last Friday night in the wee hours or Saturday morning. Um, and they then amended the bill to make some technical corrections on Monday, sent the bill over to the Senate. There was all this consternation about whether the Senate was going to pass the House bill, um, but they took it up yesterday, passed it, the president signed it. So that's a bill that's focused primarily on public health measures like free testing uh, for people who can't afford it and employment issues like sick leave and um, family medical leave. So um, that's where we are in terms of that piece of legislation. So, and again, just to be clear in terms of the dates, yesterday being Wednesday, March 18th, the Senate passed the bill uh, with some modifications, not a lot in terms of the employment parts of it, but the Senate passed it uh, yesterday, March 18th, and then last night, uh, President Trump signed it. Correct. And these are, at least as far as the employment provisions go, uh, we've got 15 days for them to become effective, which means uh, April 2nd of 2020, the new measures will become effective. Yes, exactly, Mike. Now, there was clearly a lot of pressure um, to get something done and get something signed quickly. Uh, it goes without saying you very rarely see Washington acting this quickly, but uh, given the exigent circumstances existing all around, uh, it forced everybody's hand, particularly in a bipartisan um, way. Now that this has been passed by both chambers and, and now the president has signed it, is there a chance that we can see some further changes uh, once uh, some more time passes, the legislators uh, looks at this a little bit more and says, all right, well, we passed what we needed to on an emergency basis, but now maybe let's do some tweaks through further amendments. Is something like that yeah. likely? Yes, it's possible. I don't know how likely it is. Um, Senator McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate, said the other day, at a news conference that he's going to hold his nose and pass the house bill um, and that they'll then look at amending the bill that was signed into law yesterday through subsequent rounds of legislation there are going to be many 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 pieces of legislation that make their way through the congress related to the crisis in my opinion and so it is it is possible that they will amend this bill through subsequent rounds of legislation but mike frankly you know the the democrats seize the moment here first of all the administration steve mnuchin the treasury secretary negotiated this bill directly with nancy pelosi that's where the negotiation was and that's where it had to be because frankly the the republicans own this crisis the administration owns this crisis like you know, politics aside, it's it's or kind of Republican Democratic politics aside for a second, the it, Trump's in the White House, and they're running point. And for better or for worse, like it or not, the administration is perceived as owning the crisis. And so the Democrats, they know that, and they have to go through the House to pass legislation. And so Nancy Pelosi 
she gets the politics of it and she made the republicans come to her this was a nancy pelosi driven piece of legislation and like so many other things, I mean, at the end of the day, so many people want to say, you know, forget about politics. This is not a time for politics. All we care about are results. People are hurting out there. Let's get something done. Employees are hurting. Companies are hurting. And and you just said a moment ago, politics aside, we're already seeing an impact of the whole coronavirus outbreak on politics, whether it's reduced or eliminated campaigning, whether it's moving primaries. Um, do you think that this all, and I know we're still in March. Do you think this will all still have a very real impact on the ultimate prize of the White House in November? I do. I think this is absolutely going to hurt the president. I mean, I've seen estimates on GDP growth and economic impact that I saw one from Goldman late Sunday that said that, you know, 2% GDP growth this year. I don't know how we're going to get there. I mean, I think we're absolutely headed toward a contraction, a recession. And look, that is going to have an impact. On top of it, people are angry. People are angry, I think, principally associated with the, the testing or the lack thereof and the feeling like the government had plenty of time to prepare for this. It was foreseeable and they just didn't get their act together. So I definitely see it having an impact from a political point of view as it relates to the to the election. Also, Mike, this has the potential. I mean, look, our, our candidates are older and we know this virus hits older people harder. Sure. And I think personally, they should put these guys in a hermetically sealed bubble and bring them out in eight months. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously being a little bit facetious, but only a little bit because this has the potential to impact the health of the candidates. And we've already seen two members of Congress in the House come down with the virus. How many more members of Congress are going to get it? Look at the age of the United States Senate. I mean, this is scary stuff because what's the potential that the Congress that people in Congress get it, that people in Congress die, that key senators die, that they can't convene to legislate. There are some scary aspects to this and some practical aspects that have the potential to impact things politically. But you do think that this is not just an impact on the Democratic primary season, but this uh, will likely have a, a real impact on, as I said, uh, who ends up in the White House uh, in November. Yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, the Democratic primary season is over. Bernie Sanders lost, and he's going to go away. Biden, I mean, what a remarkable comeback. Uh, Biden is, is clearly going to be the nominee, and he's already on to, to picking a potential running mate. I think he'll do that sooner rather than later, actually. Sanders needs to get out. The primary's over. And that's a really good fact, by the way. And that's not a political statement by me. It's just really good that we don't have the nomination still in play. We got really lucky in that regard. But I do think from a practical point of view, yes, this has, we'll see how long it goes. People are talking about, you know, wave one and, and then it's subsiding over the summer and then wave two in the fall. We just have to see how things go, but I think it could absolutely impact the election from a practical point of view. 
Last prognost uh, prognostication question for you before we move on. Uh, you mentioned Biden and things being all but wrapped up for him. Uh, do you think he keeps his promise from last Sunday's debate uh, and looks to a female candidate for vice president? No question. No question. I, I think that he's got a... There, this is not going to be... Uh, an all-male ticket it just it can't be in in 2020 and by the way there's speculation on the other side that trump dumps pence and puts nikki haley on the ticket so uh, a lot can change but i absolutely 100 percent see biden picking um a woman to run with him as as his vp all right, and so let's move on. We'll have lots of time between now and the coming months to uh, talk about uh, politics generally, uh, both on this podcast and the podcast that you host, uh, the Belf Beltway Briefing. Um, but I want to just turn back to the real focus of today, and that is on the coronavirus legislation. Um, I'll get to uh, the key summaries of the legislation that President Trump just signed last night in a moment. Um, but just in terms of process and legislative process, as we say all the time, as you say all the time, this is not just a federal issue, even though the federal government has moved quickly this week, but the states are going through uh, similar processes this week around the country? The states are convening and considering legislation. I would say, Mike, the biggest thing right now on the state level is continuity of operations issues. It's shutdowns. It is disaster declarations, and it is whether a business constitutes an essential business or not. Generally, the orders that are coming down from the governors, the mayors are saying, thou shalt shut down unless you're essential. So all of these businesses that are kind of in a gray area, not, you know, like for restaurants, it's pretty clear, but um, we're advising clients literally across the country with respect to whether they need to shut down their businesses or, w or whether they can stay in business depending upon what they uh, what they do for for their customers so um, for example the security business are they an essential business so banking, those kinds uh, of all issues of that. Banking, are playing retail out. Yeah, banking, retail, uh, so many industries right. uh, fall into that discussion of, you know, what does it mean to be essential or not? Yeah, and, and look, the states will legislate. The states will have their own recovery packages. Um, but I think that those kind of practical issues are, are top of mind for everybody on a state level. And then, Mike, back at the federal level, we're on to round three. So first Congress passed an $8.3 billion appropriations package to put money out to help with the crisis then they passed the the bill that we've talked about and referred to as the house bill they're already negotiating an economic recovery slash stimulus package and the senate is is staying in session that's beginning with a negotiation between the white house or a coordination i guess is a better way to put it between the white house and the and the senate republicans they're going to try to take the mantle from from pelosi um and and drive that piece of legislation by the way i don't see it playing out that way the 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 senate is staying in session and if you read the washington press there's the impression being given that that the um package will happen quickly 
and I just don't see it. It's going to be an enormously complicated piece of legislation, a heavily negotiated piece of legislation. If the Senate passes something and sends it to the House, the House is, there's no way the House passes a Senate Republican bill, in my opinion. And so I think that gets bounced back and forth. I think it gets heavily negotiated. I think maybe it's a, a series of packages as opposed to a one-time piece of legislation. And I think it plays out over the next one to three months through a series of measures that the Congress enacts. So you may have answered uh, most of this uh, in that, but uh, so putting aside some possible amendments to what was just signed last night, particularly on any employment-related or, or other provisions uh, in this new federal legislation, and I guess putting aside this Phase 3 uh, stimulus package that will now be taken up, what can we all expect and what can particularly employers and businesses expect now to take place in the coming days and the coming weeks from a legislative standpoint on these coronavirus issues? an intense focus on on the economy an intense focus on workers uh the the proposals and we're we're involved in all of this we i had umpteen calls yesterday with capitol hill on various aspects of a potential stimulus package we're advising a number of clients and lobbying for a number of clients on their issues um from travel and tourism to to healthcare, and um, they uh, this is having an enormous economic impact. I don't need to tell you that because you're the lawyer for uh, for for these companies that are laying people off, and um, that's what you do for a living. So it, it is um, going to be enormously impactful from an economic point of view. And I think the Congress is intensely focused right now and singularly focused on economic relief. Yeah, it, it's just, it's such a tragic situation on so many levels. Obviously, uh, employees are suffering, employers are suffering, uh, people are worried about the current, people are worried about the future, people are worried about their health, people are worried about uh, the economics of all this. It's uh, it's just, it's significant, it's sad. Hopefully this uh, all ends sooner rather than later, we can we can certainly hope. But uh, Howard Schweitzer, who is the CEO of Cozen O'Connor's Public Strategy, Geez, I can't thank you enough. I know you're crazy with your group and in, in trying to navigate clients through all of this, but thanks for coming on for a few minutes to uh, help all of us understand this a little bit more. You bet, Mike. Stay safe and healthy, everybody. You too, Howard. That was great. I really appreciate uh, him continuing to come on. So let's go through what President Trump just signed into law, at least as it relates to the key employment law provisions. Uh, many of this is the same uh, as when I talked about it in my podcast episode on Sunday when the House passed this bill. Uh, not much has changed substantively. A little bit of tweaks were made, um, but rather than have you toggle between episode 56 and this episode 58, let me go through it once more quickly from a high-level standpoint so that uh, you know what is becoming effective on April 2nd. Uh, first, let's deal with the emergency FMLA, the Emergency Family and Medical Leave Act. So again, effective April 2nd, uh, here's what's going on. Who are the covered employers? 
this amendment covers employers with fewer than 500 employees fewer than 500 employees uh, and it's interesting people ask well how did we get to fewer than 500 employees it seems like somewhat of an arbitrary um, line drawn uh, Nancy Pelosi tweeted out a few days ago uh, the following quote I don't support US taxpayer money subsidizing corporations to provide benefits to workers that they should already be providing House Democrats will continue to prioritize strong emergency leave policies as we fight to put families first. So uh, it does seem that she is uh, not looking, or at least her contingent, contingency was not looking to include companies to get federal funding, federal subsidizing, um, when they should be as big, large companies should be doing so many of these things themselves. Whatever your politics, it doesn't really matter for this purpose. On whatever uh, side you fall on, um, you do get the sense still that as much as we're saying that politics don't play any part in this, politics still do play a part here. Um, but so in terms of covered employers, the emergency FMLA covers employers with fewer than 500 employees. Um, not really clear yet how that 500 employee threshold uh, is going to be determined, but uh, we will figure it out as the days go by. Um, perhaps the Department of Labor will issue emergency regulations on that issue, among others. At the moment, since it is a Department of Labor-led uh, issue, um, it's likely that how those thresholds are calculated will come from how they are typically calculated for purposes of the tests under the FLSA and generally under the FMLA. Public agencies of any size, regardless of the employee count, uh, are also covered uh, by these FMLA amendments. Who are the eligible employees that can benefit from this? Any full-time or part-time employee that's been on the employer's payroll for 30 calendar days. Uh, so unlike the other provisions of the FMLA, uh, you don't have to have been at the company for one year. You don't have to have worked 1,250 hours during the last year. If you have been on the payroll of the company for 30 calendar years, whether full-time or part-time, you are eligible to benefit from this. I want to make very clear again that this is not impacting the larger FMLA scheme. So all of the other FMLA eligibility requirements, all of the permissible reasons for leave and uh, what flows from that, they are still all in place uh, and are not changing to the extent that those situations involve non-coronavirus issues. These amendments only apply to those who need the benefit of the FMLA uh, because of a coronavirus issue. So those are the uh, covered employers, those are the eligible employees. Now let's look at the reasons why you can take FMLA leave under the new additions to the FMLA. So eligible employees may take up to 12 weeks of FMLA leave for what's referred to as a qualifying need related to a public health emergency. There was a lot of back and forth as to how broad or how limited that is going to be defined but the definition of qualified need is now under these amendments limited to circumstances where an employee is unable to work or even to telework 
to care for a minor child if the child care place where the child is located or if the child's school has been closed or rendered unavailable because of some public health emergency. So that's now the additional permissible reason for FMLA leave, uh, in addition to the other reasons that uh, have always existed and will continue to exist under the FMLA. Let's talk about pay, because that's really a significant part of these amendments. Uh, and the new legislation becoming effective on April 2nd divides this into two periods. The first 10 days... Uh, are unpaid. The first 10 days of the coronavirus-related FMLA leave are unpaid. Uh, an employee can substitute any accrued but unused paid leave, including emergency paid sick leave, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, it does not appear that employers can require the employee to use accrued paid leave during the 10-day period, uh, but uh, there will likely be some more guidance on that moving forward. After those first 10 days, which uh, can be unpaid, the remaining period of the up to 12 weeks for coronavirus-related FMLA leave uh, are going to be paid, but they are to be paid at two-thirds of the employee's regular rate based on the number of hours that that employee would have otherwise been scheduled to work, and there is a cap. The cap is a maximum of $200 per day uh, and approximately $10,000 in total. So the first 10 days may be unpaid, although an employee can substitute accrued paid leave if he or she so chooses. The remaining period up to the 12 weeks of coronavirus-related FMLA leave are to be paid, but they are to be paid at two-thirds of the employee's regular rate up to a maximum payment of $200 per day and approximately $10,000 in total. What about job restoration? We know that the FMLA generally uh, has always uh, required job restoration after a leave. Uh, here we also have job restoration after this emergency coronavirus related FMLA leave. So uh, this emergency leave uh, requires an employer to put an employee back to the same or an equivalent position once they return to work from this leave. There is a small business exception, not necessarily to the overall coverage question, but to this job restoration question. So for those employers who have fewer than 25 employees, if the employee's position no longer exists, there's nothing for them to come back to after the leave because of operational changes specifically caused by a public health emergency um, subject to some other conditions those employers do not have to restore those employees to their job after uh, the employee takes this coronavirus related FMLA leave. There are also uh, various tax credits to help businesses, particularly small businesses, um, deal with paid FMLA, paid uh, emergency sick leave. Uh, I don't want to get too much in the weeds of those. Uh, you should contact uh, your employment lawyer. You should contact your accountant or tax folks uh, to get more specific information about these various tax credits that are now available beginning on April 2nd. But I just wanted to note them uh, so that they're on your radar for your company to look at. The second biggest bucket 
as we talked about uh, last Sunday, is the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act portion of the new legislation. Again, this is separate and distinct from the FMLA amendments that were passed. This is now the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act on the federal level also effective April 2nd of 2020. And uh, I want to be clear as well in terms of the duration of this. As I mentioned on Sunday, this is currently designed to last just for this calendar year. All of these amendments uh, will expire, or as they say, will sunset on December 31st, 2020. Uh, as Howard just told us, it is very likely that there will be some continuing discussions and possibly some changes, additional changes to this legislation uh, in the days and weeks coming. So who knows whether this will extend it, uh, get extended. I presume that will depend in large part on how long through the remainder of 2020 we continue to have this outbreak, these uh, remote work uh, requirements. So uh, we'll continue to monitor that and, and see what happens. But for the meantime, any of these new amendments that were just signed last night and become effective April 2nd will automatically expire on December 31st, 2020. So let's go through quickly um, this emergency paid sick leave act portion of the legislation. Covered employers. Uh, again, we're talking about private employers who have fewer than 500 employees as well as public agencies of any size. Uh, eligible employees, um, you do not have the same even 30-day wait requirement that you do for the emergency FMLA provisions. Uh, an employee is going to be immediately eligible for this emergency paid sick leave benefit, regardless of how long they have been on the payroll. And so, and again, I can't stress this enough, this is all in addition to and not in place of existing federal legislation on sick leave as well as um, paid and unpaid sick leave that is existing currently on the state level and on the local city and town level. But for purposes of this new federal legislation, employers are now required to provide paid sick leave to an employee who cannot work or even telework because of six different reasons. One, because the employee is subject to a quarantine or some isolation order that is related to the coronavirus. Two, the employee has been advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine because of the coronavirus. Three, because the employee is experiencing symptoms of coronavirus and is actually seeking a medical diagnosis. Four, because the employee is caring for an individual who is subject to a quarantine or isolation or has been advised to quarantine or isolate. Five, because the employee is caring for a child whose school or place of care happens to be closed or if the child care provider becomes unavailable due to coronavirus uh, precautions and issues. And then lastly, six, the employee uh, is experiencing substantially similar conditions as specified by Health and Human Services in consultation with the Labor Department and Treasury Department. So those are the six reasons why employers would be required to now provide paid sick leave to an employee, again, all coronavirus related, all beginning on April 2nd, 2020 and expiring December 31st, 2020. To the question next of how much paid leave is required, uh, that 
depends on whether we're talking about full-time employees or part-time employees. Full-time employees are entitled to, entitled to be paid uh, for up to 80 hours and get paid at their regular rate of pay. Uh, however, when an employee in situations when the employee is caring for another family member, sick leave is paid at two-thirds the employee's regular rate. So I just gave you six permissible reasons for this paid sick leave uh, a moment ago. Uh, the first three, which have to do with the employee, him or herself, that will be paid up to 80 hours at their regular rate of pay. For the latter three reasons that I gave you, reasons four, five, and six, uh, that don't have to do specifically with the employee himself or herself, the sick leave is going to be paid up to 80 hours, but only at two-thirds the employee's regular rate. When it comes to part-time employees, as I mentioned to you last Sunday, uh, it's going to be based on the number of hours that the employee works on average over a two-week period generally. There are caps to this also depending on the reason for the leaves. If you are dealing with reasons one, two, and three, which again dealt specifically with the employee himself or herself, the law is capped to $511 per day or $5,110 in total. And when leave is being taken for the last three reasons, reasons four, five, or six, typically to care for someone else or to deal with child care situations. The uh, paid leave is limited to $200 per day or approximately $2,000 in total. Now, uh, just a couple of final notes on this, which I think are important and uh, the subject of questions that we tend to be getting here lately. Uh, how do you coordinate the various leaves? Well, this new federal legislation requires that the uh, company allow the employee to first use sick leave provided under this new federal sick leave law and then for the employee to decide whether to use any remaining accrued paid leave that may be provided under the company's general policy. Uh, the businesses, the employers are not allowed to force employees to use accrued leave under their policy first before accepting the benefits of this paid sick leave law that the federal government just passed. Um, as with uh, any of these kinds of laws, as with most employment laws, generally uh, there are retaliation provisions. This should be the most obvious thing that I have to say, uh, that there are anti-retaliation protections here, uh, as well as penalties for people who violate these laws, people who fail to pay wages that are required under these laws. Uh, and there are, under this new paid sick leave law, like with the emergency FMLA provisions, also tax credits that are being offered to businesses to help alleviate some of the impacts of this. Um, I also suggest, again, like I said before, if you have questions specifically on the tax credit issue, consult one of your employment lawyers uh, or speak with your accountant or uh, otherwise your tax advisors. So that's it at the moment on the federal level, as Howard also made clear, and as we talk about on this podcast all the time, there's a lot going on on the state level too. Many states, in addition to requiring certain um, 
levels of quarantine uh, are also passing versions of sick leave, paid sick leave laws. Uh, New York, for example, uh, just enacted a uh, significant piece of legislation that is not meant to be in lieu of the federal legislation, but uh, you may have to consult that if you're doing business in New York at all, have any employees in New York at all, um, because to the extent that the benefits there may be greater than what the federal legislation provides, uh, you may need to provide those additional benefits. Um, and as I said, and as I always say, uh, continue to check your local jurisdictions, speak with your legal or financial advisors uh, who might be able to advise you on what those requirements may be. So I really appreciate you all taking the time to listen here. Lots going on in all different uh, respects, but uh, we will continue to try to keep you updated. In that regard, thanks to uh, over 1,700 of you who registered for my firm's webinar our last Friday, March 13th, which was designed to give you a very broad and far-reaching discussion about the coronavirus issues coming from different perspectives, OSHA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, as well as some best practices. If you missed that, you can watch and listen to the webinar by going to cozen.com. Uh, we have the link to that uh, on our page. If you just have the time or just want to listen to the audio component of it, in addition to being able to do that on our Cozen webpage, uh, I also rebroadcast the um, webinar in its entirety, the audio component, just this past Monday, March 16th, which was episode 58. Uh, trying to continue to update all of this beyond the high-level summary I just gave you in the past uh, 40 minutes or so. My firm is going to be doing a supplemental webinar tomorrow, which is Friday, March 20th, that will really be exclusively focused on this new federal legislation and what you need to know as employers moving forward. Again, like last Friday, we will be doing this tomorrow, March 20th at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. Uh, if you want to register for this free webinar, again, go to cozen.com and information about the webinar and a link to be able to register is right on that page. Otherwise, please feel free to email me and I'm happy to send you uh, the invite and the link to register. Thank you so much for listening. We will continue to keep you updated on uh, all things going on. Please send me emails if there are specific topics that you would like me to ask or if you'd like me to address on future episodes. Until then, please stay healthy. Please stay safe. Do what you can and do the best you can. Uh, and I hope all of your labor is productive.